Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Back to What on Earth, the podcast that answers the question, what on earth is going on under the earth, above the earth and around the world as Australia starts transitioning to the post-carbon economy? Each episode, we look at the issues from an industry and a business owner's perspective, and we try to provide you with strategic and business insights into the big issues. We believe the first step to understanding uh, how to transition your business is to know the big picture and to know how to put that into a strategic context. This podcast unpacks the big issues and tries to find for you clarity in the chaos of change. So grab a coffee or press the, the start on your walking app and join us as three good friends have a, a coffee or a tea and enjoy uh, an, an informative chat. Yes, I'm James Scotland, and with me for a coffee or a tea and a chat are my two amigos, two learned friends and two learned colleagues and good friends. Hello, Tenant Reed. Hello. There's extra chaos to find clarity in at this moment, I think. <laughs> I don't know. There's lots to talk about. And hello, Paul Hodgson. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Great to be with you both again. Uh, if anyone's interested, you'll find out more about each of us in the show notes. Hey, um, tell us, right, there's a lot going on in Australia's transition at the moment. So, so let's get into it. The big news at the moment seems to be around hydrogen. Uh, and for, for me, at least, this raises more questions than answers. So let's ask uh, for a while the question, what on earth is going on with hydrogen? The Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, in their report called the Mitigation of Climate Change Report, uh, signed off by 193 countries, uh, said that they uh, have a roadmap for decarbonising the world. It's a huge report, 2,913 pages, and I haven't read it yet. Uh, but I do know that it looks at clean hydrogen, and it says that, quite surprisingly, that clean hydrogen is a great idea, but it is not going to supply all the answers that we need. It says hydrogen could be used or would be used to complement other energy carriers, mainly electricity, where hydrogen might have some advantages. It says hydrogen could provide long-term electrical storage to support intermittent renewal, renewables and could enable trading and storage of electricity between regions in order to overcome seasonal or production capability differences. It's talking there as about storage about uh, electricity between regions, about uh, trading and storage. That sounds a lot like they're getting into the electricity market with, with, with hydrogen. Before I throw to Paul to talk about hydrogen, Tenna, I know that you've, you've spent a lot of time on this. How does the electricity market work? It's all about peaks and troughs and loads and, and deloads and, uh, across regions, isn't it? It is a, it's a complicated market. Uh, and it's getting more complicated, both because the the job that the market is doing is getting more complicated, more and different kinds of energy resource to match to demand. Uh, but also the the design of the market is evolving and um, and governments, uh, at different levels are, are, are all adding their policies to sit alongside it or to, to deliver more of the results that they want. So 
I'll give you a, a, a picture of like a point in time, but it is it is changing quite a bit. So um, the the bill that uh, you as an electricity user get contains costs for the wholesale um, production of energy and costs for the networks, the poles and the wires and the transmission lines that get it to you and costs for running an energy retail business, including a bit of cost for complying with policies like the renewable energy target or uh, the various state energy efficiency schemes. So the a lot of the time when we're talking about the electricity market, we're talking about the, the stuff that goes into that wholesale price, uh, the generation and the trading of electricity, but the rest of the bill is quite important too. And the implications for the, the transmission and networks part uh, of um, solar developments, electrification of houses, uh, changes to um, the the role of of, uh, gas um, or the growth of hydrogen, those will have some implications on the network side as well. But if we look at the the wholesale part, so the price for energy itself, uh, we've got a market that really at the moment centres around a real-time, well, a a spot market uh, where um, every potential bidder from uh, the the generation sector and some increasingly demand response, people who are willing to stop using electricity at a point in time to, to help out, all of these potential resources, they bid to the market operator what they're willing to supply at, the price that they, they need. The market operator stacks up all those bids from cheapest to most expensive and it looks every five minutes at where demand is at and it stack it does the cheapest stack that it can to meet demand and then whatever the price is that was bid by the marginal bidder in that stack so the the most expensive of the bidders that they need to go to to meet demand that's the price that everybody who is dispatched who's actually called on to to supply a resource that's the price they get for that five minutes. It used to be half an hour, now it's five minutes. And so this is like, this is a very uh, amazingly challenging job to keep um, these market wheels spinning, um, to to marshal all these resources. Um, And like the physical side of it is complicated, running the market side of it is complicated. But that spot price every five minutes, that's kind of the foundation of everything else. There are lots of long-term contracts that are sold. Um, There are uh, retailer reliability obligations. There's derivatives. There's lots of products. But they all, in the end, refer to uh, or or relate to um, either um, realising or hedging against outcomes in that spot market. And I'll just like that's that's a like a lot of um, of detail, but no, no, that makes sense. Yeah. The thing that I would add is that the the electricity system needs a bunch of different kinds of resources to meet um, energy users' needs. And if you want to get really simple about it, you can say it needs bulk energy and it needs flexibility. And the market that's emerging is one where bulk energy is increasingly going to come from wind and solar, 
um, because they're very cheap sources of bulk energy. Um, and then flexibility, well, there's a lot of different flavors of flexibility. There's a lot of that are, that are needed and there's a lot of different ways of providing that flexibility. You've got needs that occur every day, like uh, at you know, sort of 5, 5 to 7 p.m. every day, solar uh, declines and, and, and goes to, to, to near nothing and people get home and they turn on uh, their appliances, they do some, some cooking. Uh, and so you've got like a, a, a daily need for flexibility to manage, but then you've got things that might occur like maybe once every several years, maybe once every several years you get a week when uh, it's it's winter time. There's not a lot. There's not a lot of sun, and you've got a, a for a still period with not a lot of wind. Um, the kind of solution to meet that challenge that might occur quite rarely is very different, both in terms of the physics of it uh, and the economics of it to something that is going to solve your your daily 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. challenge. So when we're thinking about, you know, what's the relevance of hydrogen to all this stuff, um, I think that context of different, a, a whole menu of different needs and solutions is quite important. Uh, I, I look forward to hearing your answer uh, or response to that, Paul, because I know that you're spending a lot of time in hydrogen. Before I get that, though, um, Tenet, is that, how does the big users of electricity, the businesses, react to that spot price arrangement? It sounds incredibly complex and therefore perhaps yeah. unreliable. And is that the way it is around the world or are we unique? Uh, we are currently at uh, one end of the, the spectrum on uh, emphasis on these so-called energy-only markets. There are other designs and, and hybrid designs around the world. We are potentially moving towards a more hybrid market because there's this debate about a capacity mechanism uh, that rewards uh, generators based on their availability rather than um, how much energy did they actually supply. Um, and it's true, though, uh, what you say, if if you're in that, you know, in the, in the five-minute spot market, in theory, the price can change from minus $1,000 a megawatt hour where you're, you're being paid to consume energy or you are paying through the nose to send it out. It could change in five minutes from that uh, floor to $15,000 a megawatt hour uh, as the cap on where those prices could go. So, yeah, playing in that market potentially is extremely risky. You've got to know what you're doing. Um, there have been um, businesses who have had um, terrible difficulties um, by by not knowing what they were doing or, or just getting unlucky. And so most of us, uh, we experience this market at a at a distance, uh, mediated by it, like energy retailers who have roomfuls of traders uh, and and put lots of brain power and computing power into um, uh, assembling a portfolio of physical assets and financial contracts that will try and control the risks uh, involved in, in this uh, potentially super volatile market. Um, but I'll say one other thing about electricity prices, which is at the time that we're talking, um, 
there has been an immense increase in the futures prices for electricity in New South Wales and Queensland especially. There's been some increase across the board, but the the highest absolute numbers are being hit in those states. And energy users are just about to start seeing um, this flow through to um, their, their next electricity contracts. Um, and this is largely about the fallout from the war in Ukraine. Um, coal prices have gone through the roof uh, and um, some of our coal generators, black coal generators in New South Wales and Queensland, have exposure to um, movements in these in these spot prices or they're going to recontract uh, for their coal. Um, so their costs are going up. Uh, the uh, the price expectation of that they're going to need to supply has gone up, so futures prices have gone up. And at the moment, this is just entering the consciousness, but I, I think it's going to be a, like quite a big deal for um, the next couple of years at least. Um, so that's a pretty interesting context for uh, for energy transition because the, the like the status quo is going to be very expensive for quite a few people. Yeah, in, we, we're seeing uh, um, end, end pricing of products increasing a lot recently because fuel has gone up, including fuel to bring things into Australia, um, and the lack of shipping to come into Australia. Add the cost of power to production. Um, boy, it's going to be an unhappy environment uh, for a while if that happens. Let's come back to that, though. Paul, uh, Tenet was talking about bulk energy, flexibility, 5 to 7 p.m. peak loads, complex pricing systems, complex uh, energy structures. How's uh, how's hydrogen going to help this situation or is that just going to make it more complex? Pick up the hydrogen story from here. I think it's going to do both, James. Um, it's going to make it, uh, it's going to help and it's also going to hinder and particularly in the short term. Um, there's a lot of interest around hydrogen as a carrier of elect, uh, of, elect, of, of energy. Um, it's not an energy source in its own right, so it still requires energy to, uh, uh, to be the source. Um, I, I'll take a step back and I'll say, look, in Australia, we produce about 24,000 gigajoules of energy each year. Um, that's made up of principally coal, uh, gas, a little bit of oil, um, the uranium oxide equivalent, uh, which is about 16% of that, and 2% is renewables of our energy resources production in Australia. Now, renewables have been focused on our domestic market and particularly on electricity, and particularly the national electricity market. Um, and so it's a fraction of our overall energy footprint, if you like. Now, um, Tennant talked about wind and solar being at bulk levels now the, the cheapest form. And um, it's how we scale those, I guess, into uh, lots of applications. So at the moment, we're trying to decarbonize our grid as, as coal-fired power stations and to a lesser extent, gas-fired power stations come off, off the market um, over, the, over the coming decades. Um, and that will, you know, that, that requires us to produce many more green electrons, um, whether it's through wind or solar, but also with using batteries to do that firming and that flexibility that Tennant talked about. Um, uh, at the same time that that's happening, we've got mass electrification. So we've got electricity being used in our mobility sector through uh, electric vehicles, 
uh, we've got it being seen uh, uh, used much more in industry for electrification of equipment. Um, it's being used, for example, in replacing um, gas appliances or gas heating um, in some domestic settings. Um, and so we're actually getting a larger demand for electricity at the time we're also trying to decarbonize our existing electricity grid. And then green hydrogen comes along. And let's say hydrogen more generally. So hydrogen uh, is currently produced in Australia at scale, it's produced through the ammonia process. It's used predominantly in ammonia for things like fertilizers, but then also in oil refining. Um, we know how to scale hydrogen uh, using methane. Effectively, uh, the methane uh, molecule is uh, split um, and, and the hydrogen is used and then bonded with nitrogen to, to create ammonia. Um, that, that part of the economy is a gas-driven side of it, and, and the issue is really carbon. The same issues with methane are the same issues in ammonia um, and, and in any of those derivatives that come from methane. Um, what we're seeing, I guess, is that people are looking at green hydrogen as a way of partnering with the electricity sector, and particularly this uh, low-cost wind and solar, and hopefully ultra-low-cost uh, wind and solar into the future, to actually create chemical carriers for green electrons. Um, we're going to need fuels and chemicals. We're going to need liquids and gases that are going to be able to help the electrification story finish the job of decarbonisation. Potentially 40% of global energy demand will not be able to be directly electrified. And I'm talking of things like um, for, uh, agricultural fertilisers, uh, long distance heavy uh, mobility, uh, the green steel industry, uh, the ability to uh, uh, trade it around the world um, in, a, in, a, in a liquid or a gas form. Um, all of those things will be really important to actually get us to net zero and hopefully beyond. Um, and even the plastics industry. So we're going to need, there's a potential to use green hydrogen as a base chemical to actually then produce something like green methanol uh, that can actually go into to replacing the fossil fuels in plastic. Um, the, the, the size of this is quite extraordinary. If you look at the 24,000 gigajoules of principally, well, let's look at the 20,000 of principally fossil fuel based energy we produce in Australia, and then we use another 2,500 on top of that that we import mainly petroleum based products. If we replace that with electricity, it's something in the order of about 5,000 terawatt hours a year. Um, that, uh, that would dwarf our national electricity market many times over. Um, and you look at that and you say to produce 5,000 terawatt hours, and Tenant can correct me here because these are back of the envelope numbers, but you could be looking at, if you were just doing that in solar, it's something like 10 billion solar panels. Um, uh, the scale of what we're looking to do, given that our footprint, given the world wants more energy, and you talked about pricing, um, uh, the world wants more of Australia's energy and they'll take as much as we can give them. Um, so, so I'm just talking about, you know, uh, replacing our current net position. Um, but we could, we could do a lot more. And we have got the solar intensity. We've got the access to offshore wind. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of skills and everything. We just need to bring it together. But we really need to be thinking and acting really, really big and really, really soon. Um, otherwise, we're, we're, we're probably not going to get there in the time scale that we want or get there at all. Someone else around the world will beat us to the punch. Yeah. I think that's the fundamental issue, isn't it? Is that if we electrify everything, we just need a massive amount of electricity. Is that the fundamental issue or is there more issues around that tenant? 
Well, so depending on the application, um, you know, it, it, the comparison to primary energy can sometimes mislead us a bit because um, so the a lot of the energy that is produced by uh Burning, burning coal, burning oil, burning gas is lost as waste heat. Um, electrified applications are often very energy efficient in addition to uh, their other characteristics. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're turning um, from an internal combustion engine car to an electric car, a lot more of the electricity that uh, you might generate from wind or solar um winds up delivering the transportation service of getting you to the shops then does the oil the, the energy in the oil in the well um, that winds up in the fuel that winds up in the um, the tank and gets burned in the engine of the internal combustion engine car an awful lot of that energy is lost along the way uh, to heat to, to um to um, inefficiencies of um, losing losing energy through braking. Um, there's just a, a, a lot of losses there. But despite all that, yes, we need a heck of a lot of electricity. And like I, I would very much agree with Paul on, on this. We, we do need to think big. Australia does big things right now. We just don't do them in the electricity sector. Um, we have... Um, had immense uh, infrastructure development and uh, private investment and government collaboration and and effort to achieve the scale of production and exports that we have in iron ore, in thermal coal, met coal, uh, natural gas and and, and LNG facilities. Um, and you know, and there have been headaches along the way with with those um, developments, um, the pressures on other bits of the economy from various phases of mining boom. Um, you know, were 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 a bit of a of a hangover to the um, the exciting party of those booms. Well, what we're thinking about now with um, the the potential for hydrogen or or green metals um, or, or otherwise would be of the scale of a few of those mining booms put together. Plus, we'd be having, uh, and, and like we should very strongly expect this to happen uh, anyway, we'll be having some like regular uh, mining booms associated with all the critical minerals um, that we've talked about previously. So um, the, the, the supply side challenges of how do you put together um, the the supply chains uh, manage the the input cost pressures get the skills uh, have adequate access to capital like all of that side of things is uh, is a big challenge at the moment and, and it's a challenge across the board obviously uh, everybody is feeling inf- inf- inflationary pressures and difficulties uh, from limitations in the supply of microchips or or whatever else in principle all those things can be overcome in principle. We can scale up uh, a long way um, to to meet the the needs for material investment that we've got, uh, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of focus, um, and it's quite a different world to the one that we've been in a lot of the last decade, where challenges for governments were were, were more on how do you create enough demand, uh, how do you how do you get activity going? Well, it's not getting things going that's the problem. It's it's managing to do enough 
um, given uh, that a lot of things are in short supply relative to demand. Yeah, I get the feeling, I was at a meeting earlier this week and, and they reinforced that feeling that Australian business people overall are quite excited by the challenges here and think that we have an opportunity to to react. The, 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 the scary part is the timeline involved, just how are we going to do this in eight years or, or 28 years? You've got your ear to the ground, Paul. What's, what's your thoughts on these things? Think- I think you've always I think you've always got to remain positive and optimistic. I think there are people that are recognizing the challenge um, and wanting wanting to work together to solve it. But uh, but in the rush of everything happening and in often our very short term timeframes um, and you know uh, even political timeframes, it is very difficult to be thinking uh, longer term about a lot of these things. I mean we're in in our our bid for a scaling green hydrogen cooperative research center. We're we're by by, as a first point of call, we're actually backcasting. So we're actually asking the question, if we ended up with a terawatt of electrolysis in Australia by, say, 2040 or 2050, what would we do today to make that happen? And it may be different to having 100 different pilot projects all running their own show um, and, and determining the state of the system in an incremental way. Uh, we actually think we need to build the, the building blocks, the structure, the skeleton, if you like, the architecture uh, for how the industry would would scale, um, and because of the quantities, uh, they are they are just simply mind boggling. I mean, I was talking to someone who was talking uh, about the the number of people that would be required to, for example, put solar panels on a large scale uh, solar farm for, a, say, an export establishment, and there was something like five thousand people per shift working three shifts a day for a, a year or something. Um, it, it you know these so where's the talent? Um, uh, a lot of these are going to be in remote sites. What about the accommodation? What about the access roads? Where are we actually getting them from? We don't manufacture a lot of solar panels in Australia. Um, and then there's all the other things. And you start looking at electrolysis, and you go, well, are we going to have enough iridium uh, in the world to actually do a whole bunch of electrolysis? So it's one of the scarcest uh, critical minerals. Um, so it 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 becomes a bit of a um, uh, quite a conundrum when you start mapping out all of these kind of challenges because to really realize the opportunity, we're going to be as strong as the weakest link in all of those uh, uh, areas. As, as we've seen through the pandemic and we've seen through our recent spate of natural disasters that supply chains, um, it could just be that you can't get a driver, right? Or it could be that uh, there's been a flood on an access road or there's been... Uh, a break in the in the life cycle of uh, of uh, the food and agricultural the agricultural produce that you're producing, and all of a sudden that creates a lag. Um, so, it, it, you know, all of these things have to line up, and if they don't line up, uh, we're 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 going to significantly underachieve. We did a really good webinar earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago on uh, critical minerals in Australia, uh, and we had two academics and two business people talking about where we are with with critical minerals in that demand that you're talking about, whether, you know, that exponential demand, how are we going to address that? And their basic answer was, and I encourage people to have listened to the webinar, but the basic answer was we need to innovate. We're looking at old world solutions to new world problems and business people are going to have to start thinking about a whole new a uh, whole new way of addressing this. I mean, this is a bit like when we said, let's electrify the world the first time. Let's roll out all these wires to every house. How the hell are we going to do that? Well, this one's even bigger, isn't it? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I was talking to uh, someone in the uh, who was saying we've spent something like 175 years building up uh, an energy system, and we're probably going to try and uh, completely transform that in 25 years. And you know, uh, as people say, keep the lights on and keep keep us moving. Um, what would be great is if we could say, look, we're going to close our energy global energy system down for a couple of years, and we're going to uh, we're going to re re rebuild it. Um, for you know for the future but you can't do that right um, so as we're seeing now we're seeing record prices for Australian uh, coal and gas we can't get enough of it um, at the at the at the end of the day we, we need energy uh, um, and uh, we want low emission or zero emission energy but uh, we, we need energy um, and we need it every day in everything that we do and um, I think a, a couple of extra things to think about it, it, particularly in the connection between hydrogen and electricity uh, so yes you can make hydrogen through reforming uh, fossil fuels um, I think that the the shift uh, that we're seeing right now in fuel prices globally is to I, I think it's really gonna cruel the prospects of blue hydrogen um, because if your if your input cost is very high, it's it's like the the main argument for blue hydrogen, uh, which is that you could you could scale it quicker and you could um, achieve a lower cost in the near term. That's right, that's right. With carbon capture and storage, you know, there's people who have objections on the the efficacy or the the credibility of the the carbon capture and storage side. The the thing that was the argument to to stack against those was, well, it's going to be cheap and we could do a lot of it. But in a world that is looking very tight on um, gas supply for uh, the remainder of this decade. Uh, and very expensive on gas for the remainder of this decade, uh, then I, I don't think blue hydrogen's gonna gonna do very well. And by the time that those things might change, green hydrogen may have got such a boost uh, that its cost decline has proceeded rather faster than than many people were would have been expecting, because the cost of green hydrogen is heavily dependent on how much of it has already been built, how much uh, experience has uh, global industry built up through doing the same thing again and again and again. So these these, these points on, on thinking about the green hydrogen opportunity are that the cost of green hydrogen is like it's it needs ultra cheap electricity. Uh, like the costs are the cost of the electrolyzers and the cost of the electricity to run them broadly. Uh, electrolyzer costs, you know, same supply chain problems as anything else right now. The the the, the materials limits that Paul talked about very important, uh, but broadly, with you know, in the medium term and the long term, doing more electrolyzer manufacture globally will bring costs down. Uh, the electricity, though, it needs to be really cheap. And that means, you know, this careful optimization between how uh, often are you running the electrolyzer and recovering, uh, spreading the cost of that capital over a lot of output versus uh, when can you get cheap electricity? And if you're m largely operating off wind and solar, uh, then, well, that's cheap when it's there. When is it there? When is it not there? And how much does it cost to um, 
get electricity from other sources, from storage, from um, uh, from demand response, from anything anything else for those other times. Uh, and so uh, that's that's really you know can we achieve really low electricity prices is is a critical challenge. Uh, and then two respects in which hydrogen might help with electricity prices are that one uh, that is uh, a big electrolysis sector could be an incredibly useful source of demand response to assist the rest of the electricity system with its uh, variability challenges because we could be talking about an electrolysis sector a green hydrogen industry that is several times larger than the quote the rest of the electricity system if they're connected to each other at all. Um, and then the third uh, potential relevance here is that you can generate electricity by uh, with hydrogen, either through a, um, a fuel cell or by burning it as a fuel in something very like a gas peaking plant. Uh, and that is an expensive way to produce electricity but it is a flexible way to produce electricity. And so there may well be an important niche for hydrogen in in an electricity system that's trying to squeeze out the last few percent of emissions. Um, There there probably will be some roles for hydrogen peakers in in that world uh, because the thing about peakers is they're very expensive to run but they're not that expensive to build. And if you build them and you don't run them most of the time, they are not a bad insurance policy to have around for some of those rare events where um, renewables are are, are low in output for for a while. Um, It would be super expensive to build so much battery capacity or so much pumped hydro capacity that you could cover a couple of weeks worth potentially of of demand and then not use that capacity 99.9% of the time. Like that's a huge amount of capital to have sitting around doing nothing. Whereas I think it's it's, cost is mostly the fuel when it's running. Well, you know, that's an expense that may be worth bearing. Bring this section to a close, uh, Paul. I'm sure you want to talk about the the cost that the tenant mentioned or the price that tenant mentioned. Um, where, where does this leave us, this conversation? Wrap it up for me. Is it hydrogen got lots of opportunities? Are we still trying to figure out the answer? Uh, uh, or is it done? Do we know what we're doing? <laughs> um, look, I mean, I think the pricing, uh, scale will bring a lot of that pricing down. And, and will hydrogen, I mean, hydrogen has to play a part um, because of, uh, uh, because of the things that we won't be able to directly electrify. So we're going to need to come up with other other means to finish the decarbonisation uh, job, um, I think. A thing I'd like to mention, I guess, is that we're very good in Australia of ideas and research and, 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 and startups and innovation. Um, and we, Australia's a really quite big technology adopters as well. So, um, But there is this supply chain challenge that we could end up uh, not being able to fulfil uh, the, 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 the scale and the size of what's going to happen because we won't be manufacturing here. We won't have the supply chain services in Australia. Um, I, I think there's a classic example at the moment of how quickly things move from a, being a, 
a demand problem to a supply problem. And you've only got to look at electric vehicles. Uh, so the Hyundai Ionic 5 um, has, I think they put 100 or about 100 into the Australian market a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was sold out in seven minutes. Um, uh, there was somewhere between 16 and 18,000 people who wanted to buy one. Um, it reminds me of as a teenager lining up in the Queen Street Mall in Brisbane to get tickets for a concert overnight. Um, that's, that's now happening with EVs and we don't make EVs in Australia. And so we're at the end of a long supply chain with other countries that want to, that have demand for EVs. Um, if we're in the same situation with all of the materials and all of the technologies that we're going to require across the growth of the electricity sector and green hydrogen, um, uh, that's going to be a real challenge. We're going to actually have to manufacture a lot more here and that creates a supply chain opportunity for Australia. Uh, we've got a lot of the critical minerals. We've got a lot of the capacity. We can do big things uh, that we spoke about. Uh, we did spend about 11, about half a trillion dollars on LNG infrastructure over the last dozen or so years. Uh, we can do big things, um, but we actually really do need to be acting now. Um, and from a business perspective, it's about clustering. It's about looking at the investment, looking at the big picture and actually looking at the long term and how you might be able to innovate and collaborate to get that global quality and scale, not just for the Australian market, but also to be exportable in its own right. I think there's a great point that your, your, your comment before about backcasting instead of forecasting, thinking what the end point is and, and work it back from there seems to me to be the way to, to, uh, to, to address this, to sort of say, where do we put our energies? Because we know what it looks like at the end. We know what 2050 to a large degree looks like. So let's work towards that rather than just going forward. I said at the top of the podcast, that this is about trying to find clarity in the confusion. So here's a bit of confusion that you might be able to help me with. Um, the largest selling semi-trailer truck company uh, in the world is Volvo, Volvo Mac. Uh, and and they're selling a large number of electric vehicle, tra uh, they call them tractors, but we call them semi-trailers, in America to Maersk, who move containers. They're, it's a heavy haulage container business. And they're selling electric vehicles to them. In uh, Canada, Volvo is selling them to McDonald's. The, the company that delivers McDonald's all over Canada is using electric vehicles. And they're running tests in Australia uh, for the heat conditions. They're running these 700-kilometre uh, variety of traffic conditions over six to eight-degree gradients to see how electric vehicles are going to handle Australian heat. In other words, they're going full bore into electric vehicles. Meanwhile... There's been an announcement that there's going to be the Hume Hydrogen Refueling Network, which is every, there's four, I think, refueling stations along the Hume Highway between Sydney and Melbourne, and they're going to extend it up to Brisbane. Um, why? <laughs> well, the, like the, this is an area where there's a, there's a, a real fight between technologies and, and, and companies that have made bets on those technologies and, you know, and, and, and some, I would say some considerable uncertainty about exactly where the the boundaries of um, you know what works where are going to settle, but the the argument that the the hydrogenistas have in in transport specifically is that uh, batteries suffer from issues of of weight and uh, of energy density and of charging time. 
and that for some applications at least, like I, I think they've been very disappointed, uh, hydrogen advocates on the, the light vehicles front where battery electric seems to be walking away with uh, the future. But uh, in some contexts at least, the argument is you have such a need for energy density uh, because you're hauling big loads or you're going extremely long distances or uh, the, the, the recharge time or the refuel time really matters or some combination of those that the fact that um, hydrogen involves more, more energy losses uh, using that for, for transport than does uh, battery electric will be worth it. The extra capital cost or the lower volumes available will be worth it because of the nature of the context. And so what we're seeing is, you know, there's battery electric challenges in a lot of these categories where we've thought, well, you're going to want liquid fuels. Um, there's there's battery electric uh, corporate jets being um, uh, put through regulatory approvals or, or, or offered into markets. There's ferries, there's there are trucks, there are um, all sorts of, of, of vehicles sort of challenging these these categories. But you do still find that they're mostly for shorter hops or for lighter loads or for, for contexts where it's a bit easier. Personally, I reckon that uh, hydrogen for and derivatives, ammonia, uh, methanol, uh, maybe um, synthetic fossil fuels um, are going to have... Um, sig- a really significant role in the heaviest segments, but but it is a real fight in in more of those segments than I would have thought with battery electric. I'd, I'd say James that I'd add to what Tennant said there, and I think the the key thing to come from is that the the future energy system is going to be much more complex and diverse uh, than the old energy system. So uh, this is not a win lose kind of scenario between electricity and hydrogen or any other application. There is going to be uh, regional differences, application differences, seasonal differences uh, that are going to provide uh, a compelling advantage for one over another. Um, and in in the sort of geopolitical instability and, and energy security, people will actually pay a premium also to have a diverse mix. Um, so I think that's a really important part. The second point I'd say is that if we're looking at wind and solar and we look at bulk wind and solar as being the cheapest form of energy, that green electron you want to use uh, as it travels through various uh, distances and different conversions, you add, uh, you, you get losses, uh, you add cost, you add complexity. So really, you want to use that green electron at the point that it's generated. That's, that's your, your cheapest form of, of that green electron. Um, you put it into a battery. Um, you, there's some losses, uh, there's some extra cost in the system. Uh, you transport it across transmission lines. Uh, there's some loss, there's some cost in infrastructure, etc. And the same with converting it into hydrogen and back out of hydrogen, all those kind of things. So from a pragmatic sense, what you want to do is in, in different regions is to look at where, where's that going to work. Now, for example, if, if Japan's going to import a lot of its renewable energy as green hydrogen, then it's probably going to have an advantage to use fuel cell electric vehicles and fuel cell electric trucks. But in Australia, where perhaps uh, we're going to have a lot of our own solar and wind um, uh, close to where it's going to be used, um, then perhaps battery electric is going to have a much more uh, greater advantage. 
Um, and and I think that that's going to happen, and I think it'll be even seasonal. So we know in Europe, for example, they're going to import a lot more renewable energy in winter uh, than they're going to uh, need in summer, uh, just as they do with a lot of uh, gas at the moment. So I think all of these things mean that uh, rather than squabbling, uh, as often happens in the energy sector, you might be surprised to hear there's been arguments about the energy sector. Um, uh, there's that there, we're going to need all of these things, and they're all going to sit and work alongside each other. And we've got technological changes, we've got scaling changes happening, so it's pretty hard to predict where they're going to be. But we know we're going to need them all. An end point that we understand: uh, a confusing market, lots of innovation needed. Uh, opportunities abound. It's a it's a business person's playing field, isn't it? This is this is a, an opportunity for Australia to do big things, but for companies to do big things. There's a big announcement. Uh, just changing uh, tack a little bit. Uh, a company called Iluca in Western Australia has been given a massive grant. I think 41 million, which is way above what their current trading is, uh, to create a rare earth refinery, the first in Australia, uh, which means that we're moving our up the value chain from just extraction into refinery. Got a comment on that? Because for me, that's an exciting yeah, development. It's, uh, it's also an, an unusually uh, large uh, bet from the, the, the federal government on, on one particular uh, facility rather than... It is eye-watering, Tenet. Eye-watering how big yeah, that bet yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very different approach to uh, let's let's spread uh, little bets around and, and uh, help a bunch of different operators. Uh, and that it has greater potential to make uh, a big difference. Um, obviously, it also has, has greater risk that if things happen to go wrong for this one particular facility or it, the, the case for it, Turned out to be not as strong as as they thought. Well, you know, bigger uh, bigger potential for benefit, bigger potential for for, for loss. But it's pretty interesting, uh, and you know, we're we're um, as we speak potentially hours away from the commencement of a of a federal election campaign. Um, there's going to be more from all sides, more proposals for for funds uh, and. Uh, uh, buckets of, of public money to support this kind of stuff uh, and the move towards quite big individual bets uh, could be very interesting over the next few years, uh, really, whoever whoever triumphs at the federal election. I can see business, business people all around Australia doing backflips saying, hey, pick me, Paul. Oh, look, absolutely. I think uh, the, more we, the more we can link up that supply chain and that opportunity Look, I mean, 30 years ago, I started in economic policy in the Department of Primary Industries and Energy, and it was all all about value adding Australia's, you know, mineral and and agricultural and energy wealth. Um, and uh, it's great to see that we're working on that from both sides of the supply chain. Um, but there is a scale in the middle, just just the skilling side uh, and and the talent side, and actually even arms and legs uh, that that's going to be really important for that. So, but look, it's great to see. Uh, big big investments uh, backing backing these areas that are going to be really critical to our future. So, yeah, I'm uh, all for it. Yeah, it's always nice when you hear an announcement where we're moving the value chain. Where we're moving along the value chain. Okay, we're coming to the end of our time together. One more thing: uh, we've talked a lot about pricing in terms of carbon, uh, how we can use governmental pricing policy to to change our attitudes on on current. Uh, thinking 
And uh, I, I noticed this quirky little article about one of my favourite places, Singapore, which now has increased the cost of the right to buy a car, so not the car, but the right to buy a car in Singapore, to uh, $99,999 for the average car, the, the sort of the the sedan, basically. That equates to 73549 USD. So you've got to pay nearly $100,000 to Singapore uh, in Singaporean dollars in order to have the right to then go buy a car. Electric vehicles are in a different category, a much lower category for the little small vehicles. Regardless of what the EV is, you, it attracts a lower price. Is this a nice way to get people to <laughs> to get used to seeing the car as not the main form of transport or is this heavy-handed in the typical Singaporean way of, of doing things? I reckon it is quite specific to Singaporean circumstances. You've got uh, a, a very major congestion challenge uh, in, a, in a very small place. And uh, I mean, that, that kind of cost differential um, will, will have an impact on, on people. But I, I don't know that that's a viable, that particular um, flavour of policy is viable outside of Singapore. I don't think so. I think, imagine the riots in the street. Well, any comment? Yeah, look, I, I would decouple the kind of right to own a vehicle with what it's actually really about, which is the ability to get from A to B when you need to in an economical way, right? So I think, I think in Australia, we do get a bit hung up on actually owning stuff. Uh, but the shared economy um, uh, has been a, a thought for a long time. And in fact, it's probably, it probably predates our modern economy. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, as long as as long as people have access to uh, to mobility um, um, uh, when they need it and an affordable rate, um, it, it, it sounds like a logical. I mean, Singapore's half the size of the Brisbane City Council area, uh, which is just one local government in Australia. I mean, arguably, it's the, obviously the largest, but it's a very small uh, country, very small island. Um, so it makes sense to kind of try and limit everyone having a car because their car, their roads would just be one long car park um, if uh, if everyone had that right. Um, whether it's the right policy or not, I don't know. But yes, uh, there are some things that work in Singapore that, that wouldn't work elsewhere, I suspect. Yeah, the, the trade-off in Singapore is the uh, RMT, the Rapid Mass Transport System, which means that a, a public transport item turns up a minute or so after you, you walk onto the street. You don't have to wait half an hour uh, like I have to in parts of, of Australia to get a train or a bus or whatever. So it's a trade-off between the right to move and the right to own your movement. You, we and I, Paul, haven't talked about the shared economy for a while, but there is this sort of thought that in the future it might be uh, we'll ring up Uber well, we'll text Uber, we won't ring them. We'll text Uber and say, I don't want a, a driver, just drop me a car off because I just need to take my my partner for a drive in the country so i'll just rent a car from you but bring it over to me something like that you know we might not even own vehicles in the future yeah well that's and that's the uh, the autonomous vehicle utopia isn't it really that uh, that a car would pick you up take you to you know it could be yours and a bit in the singaporean example you might have people who actually own cars as almost a business opportunity um and uh, you know your car is charging up overnight it, it picks up picks you up in the morning james it takes you into the office it knows when to come and pick you up again. And during the day, it's out acting like a taxi or an Uber, 
taking freight, taking passengers, doing a whole bunch of things, plugging into the uh, local car parking station to send some electrons into the grid because it's got a call that uh, that it's going to be uh, uh, it can there's been a, a an outage somewhere and, and it can do that. Um, very very clever technology that that could do that and uh, and I, I assume we're moving to a, an area where we won't need as much. Um, you know, let's not forget that the first the first rule of decarbonisation, I think, is to reduce energy usage, uh, to reduce material usage. Uh, you know, the efficiency one is actually the first step before we think about what we generate um, and how we generate it. Tenant, any thoughts before? By the way, the Dutch would probably say that the cost of energy for riding a cycle hasn't increased uh, over over the last few months. Well, I I have uh, I have thoughts here, but. Look, let's face it. When it comes to cars, uh, I'm a weirdo compared to, to to most Australians. We just upgraded our 2007 Yaris to a 2015 Yaris uh, because we just don't think about cars much. We live in a place where we don't need to use them all the time, and we just you know it's a it's a it's a low it's a handy thing, but it's a low priority. So I'd be perfectly happy in a in a world where you know I was just procuring transportation services uh, efficiently through my app, not owning things, living lightly. But I get the feeling that a lot of people are quite enthusiastic about their cars, uh, and they're an important part of their their identity uh, and and their lifestyle. And so I don't know. I think it's going to take. A lot of different solutions because different strokes for different folks. Yeah, it raises a good point that you know if you're living in the country and you're uh, and there's a lot of people who do live in in regional Australia. We're not all on all in cities. There's a different solution altogether. Uh, been a good conversation. I, I think hydrogen versus you know the other fuel fuel sources is going to be an ongoing debate i'm excited by this conversation because there are so many opportunities for business people if they just see uh, that this is changing is changing fast and that creates opportunity for business final points i would just add like one note of caution on the opportunity front which is that there is a large gulf in the uh, between projections for how big hydrogen might be in uh, in a net zero world uh, the the there are projections where the world might be consuming a couple of hundred million tons per annum of clean hydrogen and there's projections where the world might be consuming more than a billion tons per year of clean hydrogen and at this point I don't think we can say which one of those we're we're gonna get. Uh, and even though both of those stories involve huge investment, um, huge growth, huge opportunity, in the spread between those two, there's a lot of scope for people to lose their shirts uh, based on being too fast or too slow. Uh, and so um, I think you know between between big and ultra mega is. A lot of risk, um, so so people should be excited about the opportunity. They should be seizing it, but they should go in with their eyes open that there are some important uncertainties to manage. Paul, oh, absolutely, hundred percent agree with tenant there. Um, uh, I would I would 
there's a cautious cautiousness that people should and a curiosity right so if you're working and you're going well if if anyone says to you my solution's going to be the answer it's the silver bullet uh, i would be backing away quite quickly um but i would also think unless you are you know one of the world's largest mega corporations you know run by a billionaire and you can change markets uh, you really need to take a portfolio approach you need to be thinking about different things you need to be looking at how you might be able to uh, adapt from one course of investment to another um, so I'd be really scoping that out and, and 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 really being curious about about things you know go and explore a little bit about talk to people about why I well you know why have you picked um, uh, battery electric over fuel cells why are you you know how how we do that go and talk to your chemical suppliers find out what they're doing so I would say be curious look at taking a portfolio approach um, but be ready to grasp the opportunities when they come. But um, uh, as in any nascent industry, uh, beware the snake oil salesman. That, that wonderful story about the, uh, the the man that said, if you give me $100, you'll learn the first lesson of how to get rich. Uh, and, of course, he gave nothing back. He just said, there's always someone that's gullible. That's the first lesson. Uh, good comment, though, isn't it? A good way, to, good way to finish it about everyone's – keeps asking what's the answer which way are we going and i think this conversation has been about there's no answers yet as business people we need to keep looking to see what part of this transition we're going to play in and what the opportunities are caveat emptor i think is the word isn't it buy beware uh, and that's a great place to finish thank you guys good conversation talk next time see you soon yeah thanks very much james thanks tenant great great chat mm-hmm.